Hello, this is Arlie Proctor. Welcome to an Atomic Bombshell Extra, an even deeper dive into the life of Clara Mink Stevlin, the woman that J. Edgar Hoover rightly called the most dangerous woman alive. Now, if you've heard our 10-part podcast, you know all about her astonishing life, her romances with JFK, Truffaut, Fidel Castro, Howard Hughes, and her career as a film noir goddess and the queen of 1950s teen exploitation. Well, she was also blacklisted because her mother, Margaret Pendleton Kingsbury, a member of the Hollywood Communist Party, enrolled her in the Young Communist League when Minx was eight years old. Today's Minx Devlin Extra will tell the story of the film that these dedicated lefties made in 1946 called Here Comes Uncle Joe, a film that was re-released just a few years later by Howard Hughes as an anti-communist film called I Married a Pinko. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Skylar DeWolf, film scholar and historian at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Now, Skylar, how did Here Comes Uncle Joe get made? Well, to answer that question, I can think of no better way to answer than to quote from Minx herself. This is from her autobiography, quote, George Bernard Shaw once said, it is dangerous to be sincere unless you are also stupid. Unfortunately, Maggie, that was her mother, and her pals weren't stupid. When World War II ended, they thought they owned the world. They'd won. They were right. They'd chafed under the heckling they'd received when they stood against fascism in 1937, four years before the Republicans were sufficiently annoyed by Mr. Hitler to consider him a threat. And now it was payback time. Frank Capra, Willie Wyler, and George Stevens have just formed Liberty Pictures, so why not Maggie and her pals? Ergo, Collective Pictures, a democratic enterprise dedicated to making quality pictures that ennoble the human race. The fevered rhetoric still echoes in my brain. Film is a weapon of social upheaval. Our social ideals will be thrown up on the screen with the impact of a hundred A-bombs. And so Dix, Maggie, and all their commie pals make Here Comes Uncle Joe, the worst hunk of lukewarm Gorgonzola ever committed to celluloid. And that's quite a big claim here. Uh, so, yes. <laughs> so a bunch of lefties got together and decided to make this is going to be the ultimate statement of progressive values in 1946. Now, the cast was really amazing. Just about every creative who was, uh, well, soon to be blacklisted. It's written by Dixon Cook Jr., starred John Garfield, Morris Karnofsky, Will Gear, Larry Parks, Lionel Stander, Lee J. Cobb, Gail Sondergaard, Jose Ferrer, uh, Mink Stevlin, of course, and Paul Robeson. The music was by Igor Stravinsky from Traditional American Folk Melodies, compiled by Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie, with uncredited lyrics by Bertolt Brecht. Whew. Yes, and the participation of Paul Robeson was especially significant. He was a fierce and proud warrior for civil rights. He was outspoken in his fights against lynching and his championing of social justice. In 1946, he was just coming off a sensational worldwide theatrical triumph as the lead in Othello. As for collective pictures, well, it was just that, a collective. And the plot of Here Comes Uncle Joe sounds like it was created by a committee of terminally naive, fuzzy thinking one-worlders. Okay, so here's the plot of Here Comes Uncle Joe. I think, I think people will see what we mean. Uncle Joe Stallings, Paul Robeson, is shunned by the folks of any town because he, well, he has some funny ideas about what to do with his land, a former cotton plantation at the edge of town. 
The townspeople want to build a wall on his property to keep out the less fortunate people of nearby Ruskyville. Well, that happy-go-lucky, tail-spinning scalawag Uncle Joe has a different idea. He wants to hold a good old-fashioned barn raisin to build a place that will bring folks together, a sort of united neighbors building. At the center of this strife is a much-decorated World War II vet named Victory Peoples, Victory Peoples, played by John Garfield. Peoples is a kind and generous family man who sympathizes with Uncle Joe, but doesn't want to get involved. His loving son and daughter, played by Larry Parks and our very own Minx Devlin, well, they're ostracized by their stuck-up friends at Joseph E. Davies High School for fraternizing with that cut-up Uncle Joe. But even this minor crisis does not sway Victor. Victor E. Peoples is finally awakened from his apathetic stupor when the rabble-raising mayor of any town, Richard X. Ploiter, Lee J. Cobb, gathers a lynch mob to kill Uncle Joe, seize his land, and build the wall over the dead body of that sunburned subversive. They're just about to string up the affable sage when Gloria Peoples, Minx, clambers up on the makeshift gallows, hurls her body in front of Joe, and delivers a spellbinding 18-minute Capra-S soliloquy. Yes, and to her shock, the crowd surges forward, breaking down the door to Uncle Joe's humble shack. But instead of lynching him, they put him on their shoulders and sing a rousing rendition of The House I Live In. And this is where we get the uncredited lyrics by Bertolt Brecht that you mentioned. The movie ends with the ribbon cutting of the United Neighbors Building, with children of all nations in native dress cheering Uncle Joe as he delivers a welcome speech in Esperanto. <laughs> what else? Yeah, well, now, about that uh, soliloquy, this was written by Minx's then boyfriend, Dixon Cook Jr., uh, here it is. I, I'm reading from the script. So Minx says, Jeepers, folks, I'm no politician, just an average, just plain Josephine like this colored fella behind me. But you don't have to be one of the quiz kids to figure out that, well, if we're all going to live in peace in this crazy world, we're going to have to find a way to live together, to love one another, like the Bible says. Now, I've known all you folks my whole life. Heck, we grew up together. Betsy, you and I used to play kick the can in that vacant lot behind the dry goods store. And Homer, you gave me my first kiss over the punch bowl during our junior prom. You're good, kind, gentle folk. Well, at least until Mr. Richard Exploiter put a bee in your bonnet about Uncle Joe here, a man who you've known for years as a real swell guy and a rock solid hundred percenter when it comes to helping you out of a jam. And now you want to burn his place down and run him out of town? Why? Because he has a crazy dream that we can all be united as neighbors? Have you forgotten what Eleanor Roosevelt said? That it's time we put aside our differences and realize we're all one race, the human race? Come on now, all for one and one for all, share and share alike. That's the American way. Yeah, Mink's got a lot of good speech scenes in movies. Well, so what happens to Here Comes Uncle Joe? Here, once again, is Minx from her autobiography. Quote, the film opens at the Rialto Theater in New York City. The mainstream press hates it. 
The Communist Party's Daily Worker did say that it, quote, delivers a well-deserved knuckle sandwich to the solar plexus of race prejudice and rampaging capitalist amnesia toward our Soviet brethren, end quote. But even that commie paper has to admit that it's, quote, a bit slow in spots, could use some judicious editing to perk up the comrades. Well, after some disastrous test screenings, RKO puts it on the bottom half of a double bill with Dick Tracy versus Q-Ball. Then Howard Hughes takes over the studio and the film disappears except for occasional screenings at socialist summer camps and Henry Wallace for president rallies until 1953, that is. Ah, 1953. Well, Howard Hughes is now in charge of RKO. And Howard Hughes has a, well, I guess you say slightly different political philosophy than the gang at Collective Pictures. Uh, He certainly does. Hughes is a rabid anti-communist who is eager to blacklist people at his studio and wreck the careers of anyone on the political left. Hughes has a brainstorm to recut Here Comes Uncle Joe into an anti-commie screed called I Married a Pinko. The main purpose of this version of the film seemed to be to test the political loyalties of his employees. If they agreed to be in it, they were okay. So let's now run down the plot of I Married a Pinko. Mr. John Q. Public, Ronald Reagan, is relaxing at home after a hard day at the National Liberty Insurance Company. His wife, Jane, played by Ginger Rogers, tells him about a meeting that night. Something about, I don't know, turning the parent-teacher association at Billy's school into an oppressive state-run commune for adolescent mind control or something? Public tells her he's just too darn tired to participate. He'd rather stay home and watch the ball game. So he flicks on his television set and discovers the ball game has rained out. Instead, the station is showing a rerun of Mission to Moscow with Walter Houston. Well, at that point, J.Q. Public dozes off, and here's where he dreams about 45 minutes of the original Here Comes Uncle Joe, which has been clumsily recut and overdubbed to make Uncle Joe, played by Paul Robeson, look like a sullen agitator bent on turning the town into a gulag. At that point, new and horribly mismatched footage allows J.Q. Public, played by Reagan, to appear in his own nightmare. And in it, he desperately tries to persuade his fellow citizens to wake up, you complacent fools. Wake up before it's too late. Then we see Uncle Joe again, although now he's not played by Paul Robeson. Instead, it's Ward Bond in burnt cork body makeup. This Uncle Joe radios Moscow, and his comrades drop a hydrogen bomb on any town. The sickening radioactive flash wakes JQ Public up. He looks around wide-eyed. The TV station has signed off. His house is quiet. Public peers out of his window. The town is still there. Yes, it has all been a hideous nightmare. Or has it? So JQ Public races down to the PTA meeting, just as the communists are voting to seize all private property in any town and turn the whole place into a United Nations Marxist-Leninist free love people's revolutionary re-education camp. Public shakes his hypnotized friends and neighbors out of their lethal stupor with a stem-winding, I'd rather be dead than red speech, and the sullen subversives peddling the scam slink back to Moscow. Mr. Public returns home just in time to watch the highly symbolic morning sun illuminate a rippling old glory on his front lawn. And fortunately, we have Minx to comment on this from her autobiography. 
Even though Joe McCarthy was at the peak of his popularity and anti-communist hysteria gripped the film industry, the few folks who coughed up the price of admission heaved a collective yawn at this dud. Pinko did no more business as right-wing propaganda than it did as left-wing propaganda, and by September it was playing on the bottom half of Double Bills with another of RKO's more dubious 1953 releases, Jungle Headhunters. You know, I'm thinking Mink Sevlin may be the only Hollywood star who ever made one movie released in two versions that both bombed. Yes, she, she was a trendsetter <laughs> or a landmark actress in so many ways. Well, there is naturally an ironic coda to this story. Because of the 18 movies she made in 18 months in 1956, Minx Devlin became the first Hollywood star to break the blacklist. And she's the one who created a path for her friends and colleagues who made Here Comes Uncle Joe to return to work. That's our Minx. I know it. Well, well thanks so much for listening to these Minx Devlin atomic bombshell extras. Uh, feel free to revisit the original 10-part podcast of The Atomic Bombshell and do your own deep dive by going to Amazon and grabbing a copy of Ms. Devlin's riotous tell-all autobiography, The Atomic Bombshell. Thank you, Skylar Wolf, and thank you at home for listening. Mm-hmm.